Let's hear God's word, Genesis chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Amen. We'll end our reading there in verse 16 of Genesis chapter 4. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we pray that you would enable us to understand, to receive, to believe the message that you have for us from this tragic portion of your word this morning. We pray, Lord, for the conviction of sin that we may see where and how we behave like Cain and may turn away from all such conduct, from all such attitude of heart with loathing. We pray also, Lord, that you would help us to imitate good examples. But we pray most of all that from your word, you would minister to us what we need, that we would hear the gospel proclaimed, that we would be drawn to Christ. In his name we pray these things. Amen. As we dip into Genesis chapter 4, we're not really planning to expound the whole chapter. We're not planning to do justice to the whole narrative of Cain and Abel. We're looking at it from the standpoint of Genesis 3.15, conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. If you want a much fuller treatment of Genesis chapter 4, there is a series on Cain and Abel by a gentleman named Albert Martin. One sermon in particular from there is called God's Day in Court with the Murderer Cain. And you can probably realize that it's quite a sermon from the fact that I heard this when I was 16 years old, and I still remember it pretty vividly. So if you need more, if you want to dig more into Genesis 4, there's a place to go. But for our purposes, we want to consider what light does this shed 
Or how does this exhibit the great truth taught to us in Genesis 3.15, that God was going to put perpetual enmity between Eve and the serpent, between her seed and its seed. And along those lines, the whole story is illuminating. Now, in that threat, in that curse pronounced upon the serpent, there was an implied promise. There were a couple of implied promises to Eve. There was a promise that she would have children. There would be a seed of the woman that would carry on her line and that would carry on her enmity, her hostility to the serpent. Of course, in the curse pronounced upon Eve, we were told that that was not going to be an easy or a comfortable process. To the woman, God said, Genesis 3:16, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. But now we begin to have the fulfillment of both sides of that. There is the comforting side, children are born. Although Adam and Eve and all their progeny are under a sentence of death, they have enough time to bring about the next generation before they leave the stage. But there's also the sorrow element of it. Now, when Eve has Cain, she names him a name that means gotten. So she has acquired, she has gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And then when she has Abel, she names him a name that means breath or futility or vanishingness, something along those lines. It's the idea of breath. It's the idea of vanity in Ecclesiastes. Now, that's the only clue we have to Eve's mentality. We don't really know what more she was thinking. But if you were in her shoes and you had one son and you said, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And then you had another son and you said, I'll call him breath. I'll call him vanity. That kind of seems like it indicates something about her mindset. So I don't want to be too dogmatic, but the suggestion makes sense to me that Eve thought that Cain was the promised seed. He was the indicated person. She's gotten a man with the help of the Lord. There's no need for Abel. He may be nice enough, but he's not necessary. Cain is where the real promise is being fulfilled. Cain is who really counts. Now, maybe we're overinterpreting the significance of those names. Maybe there was another reason for them, but the text doesn't say. So that's what you have to work with is Eve chose those names for her children. And they grew up and they were instructed. They were taught the same way. And at the proper time, they both brought sacrifices. Now, you know the story, and you're probably familiar with the fact that Hebrews mentions that by faith, Abel brought a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. You're probably aware that in 1 John, it talks about Cain and Abel as well and holds up Cain as an example of killing your brother because his works were evil. That's why his sacrifice was not accepted. Now, that's all that the text says at this point is God did respect Abel's sacrifice. God didn't respect Cain's. What was the reason for that? Well, from Hebrews, you can say Abel brought in faith and Cain did not. From 1 John, you can say, well, Cain's works were evil and Abel's were not. And I think you could put those things together and add another element. Cain was religious 
but he was self-righteously religious. He thought that God should accept the fruit of the ground. Now, there is a place for vegetable sacrifices. There were grain offerings that were made by God's appointment, but those grain offerings were always brought in conjunction with animal sacrifice, in conjunction with the shedding of blood. Abel's sacrifice involved a shedding of blood. Now, that's not to say that if Cain had brought a sheep instead of a pumpkin, that that would have been fine. The point is not that so much. The point is that when Abel in faith brings a sheep or the first of the flock, sheep or goats, that implies a confession of sin. That involves an acknowledgement that there's a need for the shedding of blood in order for there to be remission. And that, I think, is why you can say that the difference in the sacrifices reflects a difference in the mindset. Abel's faith is revealed. He brings according to God's appointment. He brings a sacrifice that speaks of the reality of sin being forgiven. Cain brings a sacrifice that doesn't acknowledge that. That seems to say, well, God should accept me for who I am. God should accept me on my own terms. And so in that way, you can see that Cain brought a sacrifice without faith. In that way, you can see that Cain's religious activity was an evil work. He was seeking to stand on his own two feet. Well, you know the upshot of that. Cain was not happy about it. And since he couldn't get at God, who had rejected him, he went after Abel instead, whom God had accepted. If you think about it, that's quite an instance of Displacement. Who is Cain really upset at? Is he really upset at Abel? No, he's basically upset at God. Abel didn't reject Cain. God did. But what can Cain do to God? How can Cain attack God? He attacks Abel instead. And this is the pattern. You have it in the book of Revelation. Lord willing, we'll look at this more in a subsequent sermon. But when the serpent, when the dragon is cast down out of heaven... And he has great rage because his time is short. When he can't get the man-child, who does he go after? He goes after the seed of the woman. Satan and the other persecutors would love to dethrone God, would love to hurt God, would love to attack God, but they can't. So who do they go after? They go after the people of God. You see it already here with Cain. God interacts with Cain, God puts him under a curse, but God also protects him. And Cain goes out and lives in the land of wandering. Now, those are the outlines of the story, but how do they bear on this promise of the seed of the woman having perpetual enmity against the seed of the serpent? Well, when you look at it in that light, first of all, it kind of seems like point to the serpent, right? Eve has two sons. One kills the other. Cain kills Abel. Abel who was accepted. Abel whose sacrifice was appropriate, was received by God. At this point, it seemed like the seed of the serpent bruised the head of the seed of the woman and not just the heel. Abel cannot be the fulfillment of that promise because Abel is dead. And Abel is dead without being married, without having children. Abel's line 
comes to a screeching halt. When you look at it from that light, it does seem like the serpent pulls into an early lead. Well, that's worth thinking about for a second or two. We know we are part of this conflict. We are caught up in it. Paul says to the Romans that the God of peace will shortly bruise Satan under their feet. And the language is unmistakable. He's clearly echoing Genesis 3.15. But what does it often seem like? What does it often feel like in our lives? Well, a lot of times, if we're being honest, it seems like point to the serpent. He's ahead. He's winning. That's been a pattern in the history of redemption from the get-go. God gave the promise and Abel gets killed. That's the next thing that's recorded. Many times, this conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, judging by appearances, you would say that the seed of the serpent is prevailing. Now, why do I say that? Well, I say that not to discourage, but so that we'll be realistic. I say that so that we won't be discouraged. If you look around and it seems like the serpent is winning, well, that's what it seemed like in Genesis chapter 4 as well. But you already know the end of that story. The serpent didn't win in Genesis chapter 4, and the serpent is not going to win now. The serpent is not going to win here either. Don't be discouraged by the appearances. It may look like the serpent is holding all the cards, but he's not. But there's another lesson from this. When you hear a seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, it's not immediately clear that both of those are actually going to come out of the same family, is it? But in fact, Genesis chapter 4 shows us that that's exactly what happened. Eve had Cain and said, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. But whose seed was Cain really? Cain was the seed of the serpent. Now, Abel emerges from the same womb. They have the same mother. There's a tradition that they were twins. I don't know that I buy that, but if so, that would only emphasize the point even more strongly. They have the same parents. They have the same upbringing. They're both taught that God is real. They're both taught that it's important to bring sacrifices to God. And yet, the difference between them could not be sharper. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, they're not going to be two different families. They're not going to be two different nations. They're going to be brothers. They're going to be side by side. Now that is a solemn thing to think about. There's several important lessons that arise from that. One is that really we need to learn from this. The serpent has no ability to reproduce. I hope that's clear. Satan cannot create anything. Satan cannot procreate either. So what does he have to do? What is his only option? He can parasitize. That's it. Satan didn't make his own people. Satan lured the woman and Adam into sin. Satan didn't create Cain or cause Cain to be brought forth. 
Satan led Cain astray. Satan does not make or generate. Satan parasitizes. That's what he can do. The kids have probably heard about those wasps who lay eggs in a spider and the eggs take control of the spider and make it work itself to death for their benefit. Or there are parasites because their life cycle involves their host eating a cat and then they make the host like a wolf or a dog or a human a lot more aggressive, ramping up the chances that at some point in your life you'll eat a cat. What are they doing? Well, they need another living organism. They need something with life in order to function. They're dependent on a host. Evil is like that. Evil is not creative. Evil makes nothing. Evil just infects and ruins the good thing that God has made. So where is the seed of the serpent going to come from? Well, it's going to come from Eve, just as much as the seed of the woman. But there's going to be a difference in allegiance, and that's going to lead to a difference in practice. Cain did not rule over sin. Sin ruled over him. But there's also a lesson there that we need to take on board as those who emphasize that children born to believing parents belong to the covenant and people of God. That is true. Cain was also a covenant child. Cain was brought up in the same way. Now, sometimes people take that reality and then they press that too far. They assume or they presume that their children will walk with the Lord, that their children are saved or will be saved. But if you're taking things in that direction, you're not reading your Bible. Where did Cain come from? Where did Ishmael come from? Where did Esau come from? How did Jacob's sons behave? How did a city in Benjamin come to the same place as the city of Sodom? How could the Lord Jesus say to one who was a master in Israel, you all must be born again? It's because the seed of the serpent is present and active inside of covenant families. Now, again, people may say, why are you telling us this? Are you just telling us this to discourage us, to put us on edge, to make us nervous? No, I'm telling you this to prevent a crisis of faith. You see, if you have this expectation that all your children will automatically walk with the Lord all the days of their lives, you know, you can look around and you can see that it doesn't necessarily happen in other families, But, of course, you can always make an exception in their case because you've got to have some allowance for bad parenting, right? But then it hits home. Then it comes to you. Then it happens in your family. It happens with your kids. Has God's promise failed? No, it hasn't. But we need to understand that promise with the limitations that God has put upon it. Cain and Abel were born into the same family and were given the same upbringing. Now, you have this in David's family, you have this in Eli's family, and in David and Eli's case, there is a reflection on their parenting. We are told that they didn't restrain their sons. They didn't tell their sons no the way they should have. And that can be a contributing factor for sure. But You're not told that in the case of Abraham. You're not told that in the case of Jacob. 
Good parenting is not a guarantee that a child will walk with the Lord. We need to parent by faith. We need to treat our children as belonging to the covenant and people of God, absolutely. But we need not to set ourselves up for a crisis of faith. You think about what Eve went through here. She potentially at least thought that Cain was the promised seed. What a blow when he turns out to be a bad character, when he turns out to be the seed of the serpent. Well, then you think, okay, well, surely it must be Abel, but Abel gets killed. What has happened now? Has God's promise failed? No. But Eve had to come to terms, at least potentially had to come to terms, with the reality of this mistake. Now, these are heavy things. This gets at the heart of sorrow for a lot of us. If John could say that he had no greater joy than to see his children walking in truth, well, the converse of that is that there's no greater sorrow than seeing your children not walking in truth, right? That would follow from John saying there's no greater joy. But we need to come to grips with this reality. The covenant and election do not intersect 100%. And so we need to pray for our children. We need to show them the Lord Jesus by our behavior, by our actions. We need to summon them to believe the gospel. We need to teach them. But ultimately, you have to commit your children into the Lord's hands, and you have to know that the Lord will do what is right. And what is right may not be what you would have thought or what you would have chosen. God's will alone is good, even at this point. However, none of that means that God's promise failed. We didn't read this part, but the very end of Genesis chapter 4, verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. There you have Eve's heart. She knows Cain has been disqualified from being the seed of the woman. He has shown that by his lack of faith. He has shown that by his evil works. He has shown that by his lack of repentance. He has shown that by going away from the presence of the Lord. Abel can't be the fulfillment of the promise because Abel is dead. What a heartbreak for Eve. But God has given her another one, one whose name sounds like the word for appointed because God's promise does not fail. The enmity was still there. The enmity arose within the same family and the seed of the serpent seemed to prevail. But God was not done, and Eve had Seth. Well, hopefully we can all draw the application from that one. God's promise did not fail. The seed of the woman did come. He did crush the head of the serpent. It was done in an unexpected way. If you had said to Peter or James and John, in fact, the Lord Jesus said to them that the Son of Man had to be betrayed into the hands of sinners and had to be crucified and killed, 
And they were like, no, Lord, far be it from thee. This shall never be unto thee. They didn't get it. It was a surprise. Like Eve, they had to go through something similar, right? Is it Cain? No, it's not Cain. Well, it can't be Abel. He's dead. You remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus told Jesus, not knowing who it was, they said, we trusted that he would be the one to redeem us, that he would be the one to redeem Israel. They also had to go through a crisis of faith. Now, in Genesis chapter 4, the way the Lord fulfills his promise is through the birth of another son. In terms of the Lord Jesus, God fulfilled his promise when Jesus was born, and God fulfilled his promise when Jesus rose from the dead. God is not repeating himself, so to speak, but God is continuing to demonstrate that same faithfulness to his promise of ongoing enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. We've already had a number of applications, but let's make an application then to our experience of this ongoing conflict to our spiritual warfare. Where is enmity on the part of the seed of the serpent going to come from? Well, it may well come from outside, but sometimes it will also arise from within our families, from within the church. That's to be expected. It shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't rattle us. I'm not saying it's the happiest thing ever, but it is reality. And so we shouldn't be shocked. We shouldn't be rattled when it happens. Here's another application. Where do your loyalties lie? People like to say blood is thicker than water. And as an observation about how a lot of people feel, that is true. But if we had been there in Genesis chapter 4, where should our loyalties have lain? What was more important Blood was already present. Cain and Abel were brothers. And not just half-brothers, they were full brothers. They grew up together. But Cain killed Abel. On the one hand, you do see that sin dissolves family ties. But on the other hand, you can see that allegiance to the seed of the woman or to the seed of the serpent cuts deeper and is even more important. Than blood. In other words, our attitude should never be, well, I stand by my family, right or wrong. Really? Right or wrong? That's not appropriate. Where does our allegiance lie? Where do we come down? Well, ultimately, you have more in common with the seed of the woman, even if you've never met them, than you have in common with your own flesh and blood, if you belong to Christ and they do not. The lines of loyalty ought to be clear. I'm not saying it's always easy to figure out how that works, but I'm saying in our own hearts, it ought to be clear. Sometimes we must choose between Cain or Abel. Let there be no question as to where the decision will be. You see, this conflict is real. This conflict is serious. There are casualties. Abel is the very first casualty of this war. That's why we need a military mindset. We need to be prepared for casualties, and we need to be prepared to persevere in spite of casualties. 
but not just in a grim, uh, I guess there's no choice way, in confidence that God who raised up Seth to take the place of Abel whom Cain killed, God who sent the Lord Jesus Christ and raised him up from the dead, that he will fulfill his promise in us also that Satan shall be trampled under our feet as well. Amen.